All right, this week we come in as we continue our sermon series through the book of Luke, uh, and in particular, we continue through Luke chapter 6. We come to verse 37 through 42 today. Uh, so if you turn in your copy of God's words, verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be into your lap, put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be the measure measure back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The grass withers and the flowers fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for these words. We know that they are recorded here for us today, translated into English, and a form of English that is um, common and easy for us to understand. Um, we, we don't take for granted all that, that went into bringing the work here, the word here, all of the work that brought it to us. Preserved by your Holy Spirit, authored and inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit as Luke recorded it here when Jesus was on earth and as he was teaching his disciples here on the mountain. And Father, we thank you for this word. We know that it is perfect, that it is inerrant, and that it will never return void. Lord, we really do know and believe that your word will last forever. Father, I pray that for the next few minutes here, we would set aside the distractions of everything in the world, everything that's going on this afternoon, everything that's gonna hit us tomorrow morning. And just for a few minutes, that we would quiet our hearts and that we would listen to the word that you have coming out of these scriptures. Uh, Lord, I pray that... Uh, you would just use me as your servant and that you would protect me from error, that the words I say would be faithful to the text. In your name we pray, amen. So last week I was not here with you. Uh, my family was on vacation and uh, one of the days that we were on vacation, and by the way, unless they heard me practicing in my bedroom, my family doesn't even know I'm using this story this morning. <laughs> uh, the ice in our cooler had melted, and it was time to refill the ice bucket. And we just use a, a, you know, a Tupperware, a square Tupperware. Uh, we were on the third floor of the hotel that had eight stories, 
and they, they had chosen to strategically locate the ice machines on even-numbered floors. So I went up two flights of stairs, I went to the fourth floor, I put the bucket under, and I pushed the button, and nothing happened. Uh, I assumed for a second there that all it needed was the auger inside the ice machine to spin for a little bit, and I would get ice, but I was incorrect. And then I started to wonder, well, well, maybe like the ice is just getting ready to dump in. There must be a reservoir of ice. Uh, long story short, no, there was not. Uh, so I go up another two flights of stairs, put the bucket underneath, I press the button, and again, no ice comes out. Okay, so with only minor annoyance and having already jumped to the conclusion that I would experience the same thing on the eighth floor and again on the second floor, nonetheless, I persisted and I went up to the eighth floor. I put the bucket in, I pushed the button and ice just flowed out just readily. So I pushed the button, I filled up the bucket, ice started to spill over, but I, you know, of course it's, you know, mounded in the middle, right? So what did I do? I shook it. In the process, more ice fell out on the floor. And I looked at it and I'm like, well, you know, it's, you know, I'm shaking it, but there's still room. So I took and I like, I manually placed ice cubes in the, in the void areas to, to make sure I got as much as possible. And that freed up a little bit more room. So I, I pushed the button again and kind of piled it on top. And now it was time to put the lid on, okay? So I'm holding it, I put the lid on, and of course it's not gonna seal because it's mounted and it needs to be flat. So I'm pushing on it and I'm massaging the ice cubes out towards the perimeter and I finally get one quarter and then another and then it's not gonna fit so I have to take a few ice cubes out but I finally got all four corners of this bucket sealed. And I was 100% proud of myself that not one additional ice cube was gonna fit in there. If our food was gonna spoil in the cool, cooler, it's not because we didn't have enough ice in our bucket. And then I looked around at the floor and I had made quite the mess. I picked up several handfuls of ice cubes off of the floor and put them in the drain, which if other people do that like me, maybe that's why there wasn't ice on the third and, or the fourth and the sixth floor as well. And then as I'm going down the stairs, of course, this scripture was, was in my mind and I had to stop in the stairwell and laugh out loud because I had just gone through the very process outlined here in Luke chapter six of the process that God goes through when he blesses his disciples. And as we go forward today, we are gonna talk about these rewards and we're gonna talk about what that means. Um, but before we do, we have to look into the context and we start today, you know, in verse 37, and it says, judge not, lest you also be judged. Uh, but, this, but this command, this rule, is in context of the rest of the sermon that Jesus was giving to the disciples. Uh, Brother Darren last week went through and covered some very simple but very impossible rules if you were here last week or if you listened to it on replay and you weren't convicted, then, then you probably weren't listening very close. And Pastor Dan kicked off our coverage of this chapter by preaching the Beatitudes and the woes. And that was a very clear way to let the disciples know 
that their life had just been flipped upside down. Any impulse of sinful and natural will by the grace of God will be flipped for the sake of the kingdom. Luke chapter six covers very similar material as Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, and many, many scholars call Luke chapter six the Sermon on the Plains. And they debate whether this was the same occurrence told from two different viewpoints or whether Jesus had to teach the disciples a second time and gave this sermon again. Um, the truth of which is certainly beyond me. Uh, we do know, though, that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, both Luke and Matthew chose to record this in their gospel accounts, and each of them had different goals in mind. Matthew wrote his account primarily to the Jewish community, and he included a lengthy discourse on the law. This is where we... Uh, where we learn and expound on if anyone commits adultery in their heart, they're guilty of committing adultery, that just looking lustfully is a breaking of the commandment. Uh, Matthew also included Jesus' direct teachings from the sermon on how to keep the Sabbath and the instructions for the Sabbath. Luke chose to actually give two examples of Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, the same contact, just from a different perspective. I'm not going to use the authority of the pulpit to advocate for one opinion for, or another, but I do encourage each of you to go to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 and Luke chapter 6 and compare these side by side, kind of flip back and forth as you read them. If for no other reason, then it allows you to meditate on these very difficult but very beautiful passages of Scripture and it helps as we continue on over the next couple weeks and move from chapter six on into chapter seven and the rest of Luke. It, it will help prepare you for, for the sermons there. I, I will say this, though. I am very thankful that we have both accounts, Matthew and for Luke, because these are very difficult passages. They're very difficult to interpret. They're very difficult to understand. And the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. And when we have these parallel accounts, it gives us the opportunity to collaborate inside of Scripture uh, to gain discernment and to gain understanding. With that, I do have to say that these are difficult and they have been misused. Uh, and they are probably more easily misused than appropriately used, uh, especially in the spirit of our age. As we walk through these scriptures today, we will take note of some of the ways that false teachers misuse these texts, but juxtaposed against those errors, we will see beautiful, practical, and difficult principles. If you're following along in your notes today, I'm going to have three main points. They all start with R. Rules, rewards, and recipe. Our passage today cannot be separated from the verses prior to it, where Jesus taught his disciples that they must expect their lives to be turned upside down compared to everything that is common in our nature. It is not natural to love our enemies 
It's not natural to turn the other cheek when we're attacked, to give extra to those that steal from us, or to loan without expectation of repayment. Verse 33 notes that even sinners do good to those that do good to them. The implication is that the life to which we are called is a grossly and drastically different life. In today's passage, we are instructed and we come to the rule, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. In the same way that the command to turn the other cheek does not mean that Christians are forfeiting their natural right to self-defense, and it does not free us from the duty that we have to protect the vulnerable from abuses suffered at the hands of evil-willed and more powerful people. Can you imagine telling a child suffering from physical abuse to turn the other cheek just because he was a Christian? No way, absolutely not. Verse 37 is difficult to understand even in the best times of church history, but our postmodern anti-Christian culture has brought to us an especially insidious and twisted interpretation of this verse, and it is poison. Our anti-Christian society today absolutely loves verse 37. In fact, uh, I think it is one of the most often quoted Bible verses in our society today. Judge not lest you also be judged is presented to us as believers with the full authority of Scripture, but it is twisted to mean that Christians do not have the authority to call sin, sin. And if we don't have the authority to call sin, sin, then we don't have the authority to warn sinners of a coming judgment. Our society tells us that we're free to worship within the walls of our church, we can sing hymns, we can pray prayers, we can meet at coffee shops for Bible studies. But in no way, shape, or form are we to forget, and it's to be at the forefront of our mind, judge not, lest you also be judged. In other words, we can worship, but don't we dare let that faith influence and shape our worldview, and especially don't challenge the autonomy and perceived freedom that our fallen world has. Taken from this interpretation, the words of Scripture are used, to, used by non-believers to admonish Christians for even having the audacity to live our faith. And it's used to push Christianity out of the secular world and keep it very neatly confined within the walls of the church or into our inner prayer closet. We know that nothing could be further from the truth. We know that the Christian faith cannot be confined to Sunday morning worship services or daily devotions or just Bible studies at coffee shops. We know that the Christian faith demands 100% of everything as we live our daily calling and whatever is at hand to do, as we work in our workplace to build buildings or process financial transactions, or to serve folks in the service industry, as we teach, as we raise our children, as we go on bike rides and runs or play soccer games, we know that nothing is exempt, nothing is hidden, and all dimensions of our lives are to be used to redeem a fallen world. 
We're commanded to make disciples, which is something that we cannot do without calling sinners to repentance. No one will ever accept a savior until they first see their need for a savior. And that starts with an awareness of sin. And that starts by calling sin, sin. So how do we reconcile then that God calls us to judge when the scripture here today clearly says, judge not, lest you also be judged. Well, I've done some research and I've determined that this is an entire sermon series to appropriately answer that question. So I hope you're comfortable. I hope you brought snacks. Just kidding. We're gonna look at a couple. And the first one, the first application of this is that we cannot, as Christians, we cannot ever take the place of determining who is worthy of God's grace and who is not. Judge not lest you also be judged. You cannot say to one person, you are beyond the gospel. That's not our role. We're gonna lean pretty heavily on James chapter two to expound on this. So if you could uh, turn there in your Bible, follow along. I'm gonna read some pretty lengthy passages here in James. James chapter two, verse one. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? The Sermon on the Plains here in Luke chapter 6, Jesus was specifically addressing the 12. This was, was in order. He had just listed the 12 disciples uh, and then went into to this sermon. Uh, but it's just as applicable to us today as it was to them then. But as he was teaching the disciples, the natural tendency for those 12, which would have carried on if they had, uh, if they had committed that sin, we would have carried it right on in the church as we learned from them. The tendency would have been to set up a hierarchy of good and bad people. This is what the Pharisees were known for, and Jesus is telling them right from the very beginning that our calling, their calling, our calling, is very, very different. Secondly, we need to be clear with our neighbors. We need to be very clear with unbelievers, and especially those that are hostile to the faith, that we will, in fact, be judged. And we will be judged by the same law that we are sharing with them as we make them aware of their sin. 
Each and every one of us has failed miserably, miserably at keeping the law. And it's the very law that we use to show sinners for their need of a Savior that condemns us as well. We're going to continue in James chapter 2, looking at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment without mercy to anyone has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We must remember the debt from which we have been forgiven. By the grace of God, the sacrifice of Jesus, our faith, we are reconciled to God. We will be judged by the law, but we will not be judged by our works. We will be judged by the finished work of Christ, and by faith we know that on judgment day, his righteousness, his fulfillment of the law is what will grant us forgiveness and pardon in the sight of, of the Lord. When we say judge not, lest you also be judged, we are being judged. So it's right there <laughs> to the person. You completely diffuse the, the uh, objection by recognizing that, yeah, we are going to be judged by this. However, the difference is we're not going to be judged by our works. We're going to be judged by the finished work of Christ. And to any sinner that repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus on judgment day, they too will be judged by Jesus' works and not on their own. We're now going to move to the second point of the sermon, and that is our reward. This is clearly and easily the best part of the sermon. Yet, even good news can be twisted by false teachers. If you're expecting an, an exposition on health and wealth and prosperity, as promised in verse 38, you are going to leave today sorely disappointed. These are, spirit, these are not promises of a material or a physical nature, full stop, period. There is no magical formula that if you withhold judging somebody, your illness will be cured. There is no scriptural support that turning the other cheek will land you a promotion at work. Rather, the blessings described here are, are spiritual blessings. Ephesians 1 tells us that Jesus has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places and the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. How lavish are these riches? Well, verse 38 tells us, and the explanation really does not need much more elaboration than what the text itself provides. Go back to verse 38, get back there. Good measure, pressed down, shaken, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Did you hear that? 
our blessings are pressed down. They're shaken. And even still, they're running over when God puts them into our lap. The container is full, and it gets pressed more so it gets down so it can hold some more. And then when it's passed to us, it's even overflowing into our laps. This should get you excited. God promises that every need will be supplied according to his riches and glory. And it's important to note that many times in Scripture, the most difficult commands are coupled with the sweetest of promises. Keeping the Sabbath, obeying the moral law, loving our enemies, turning the other cheek, and judging not lest we also be judged. These are all impossible apart from the work of the Spirit inside of us. We are taught here what it looks like to keep our hearts and minds focused and working for the kingdom precisely because we cannot do it on our own strength. Therefore, the blessings measured, pressed, shaken, and spilling come from God and not from our own accord. It is the Spirit that works within us to keep these teachings, and it is God that pours out the spiritual blessings onto us so that we can give glory to him. Amen. Okay, I'm going to move to the third point. We know why we need to follow these teachings, and we know that teaching them is impossible apart from the work of the Spirit. We know that keeping them is going to give us an immense and overflowing reward, but how do we do it? What can we do on a daily basis at work, school, home, to keep these impossible statues? Well, thankfully, Jesus gave us the recipe, and it's very simple. Be faithful and repent. In verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. At the start of this parable, we see a ridiculous mental image of two blind people navigating a path with one leading the other. It gets a little more personal when Jesus reminds us that everyone emulates and becomes like his teacher. And this is particularly about spiritual teaching. A child is impressionable. The character that comes out of the child will be a reflection of the teaching that goes in. Proverbs 22:6. 6, train up a child in the way he would go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This general truth, even with its painful exceptions, comes from the large-scale truth that when parents raise their children according to the fear and admonition of the Lord, our faith is passed to the next generation. As a child grows and matures in faith, the Holy Spirit takes over through Scripture, giving him the best teacher of all. This verse here, 39 and 40, applies also and doubly to church officers and teachers like elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, and the like. But we are all called to make disciples. Each of us is called to share the gospel with our neighbors. So this means you too, even if you're not leading a Bible study, 
even if you're not teaching uh, theology at a Christian school. The student that you are teaching, whether it is your child, your neighbor, your family member, your friend, your coworker, they will learn about the gospel of Jesus in accordance with the measure that you teach it to them. Next in the parable, Jesus moves to what I think is the funniest mental, mental image in all of Scripture for me personally. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? Take the log out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We have to keep repentant hearts, if I could just summarize this. We, we have to recognize that we always have remaining corruption in our, in our nature and that we must always repent when we violate God's law. There are many examples that I could have chosen to pull from through church history, but the one I'm going to use today is Martin Luther. Before the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther was known for spending hours in the confessional booth repenting of his sins. He had an acute and sensitive awareness of his own fallen condition. We often describe him nailing his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door as the ultimate act of defiance. In reality, he was trying to drive a conversation amongst church leaders. In effect, he wanted the church to take the log out of his own eye. And he could help the church take the log out of its own eye because he himself had taken the log out of his own eye himself. He knew that the church had strayed from the authority of Scripture and faithful instruction of her disciples. He didn't nail these theses to the door with the intent to start a revolution and starting a separate church, even though that was the ultimate outcome. He merely wanted the church to repent of her corporate sins. Zwingli, Knox, Calvin, Cromwell, Wycliffe, and many, many others followed faithfully in the Reformation with a faithfulness to the scriptures and an emphasis on personal repentance. And the riches that came starting in 1517, the riches that came to the church through the mid-17th century were most definitely shaken, pressed down, and spilling over, and in fact, they are still spilling over into our laps today. To name only a few, the Belgic Confession was published in 1561, the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563, many, many adult and children catechisms, the Tyndale Bible, marking the first time that Scripture was translated into a common language that common people could read and understand, that was 1535. Following from that was an explosion of Bible translations into the common languages. All of this came to the church within about 100 or 150 years or so after Martin Luther nailed the theses to the Wittenberg door. The Westminster Confession of the Faith was written and published in, 19, in 1647, and it remains today as a constitutional document for the Granville Chapel. This all started with one man with a very sensitive awareness of his sins and a commitment to repentance 
and faithfulness to the scripture that was beyond measure. The measure to which he used it was the measure to which it was blessed upon us. In some cases, we will see the fruit of our faithfulness during our lifetime. And in some cases, we will not. Considering a couple more modern examples, William Wilberforce and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Wilberforce was a Christian abolitionist in the English, in English parliament, and he worked tirelessly to see the outlaw of the slave trade. And he did in his life before his death see with his own eyes the criminalization of slavery. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was an author, Cost of Discipleship, you may have read it. He was a faithful Christian, a pastor, and he served the Lord in Germany during World War II. He was executed right before the end of World War II for his attempts to undermine Nazi Germany and Hitler's regime. He never saw the fruition of his work. The results of our outcome, the, I'm sorry, the results and the outcomes of our labor, our discipleship are not ours to worry about. In this regard, judge not is refreshing and freeing because we are not accountable for the work or for the results, we don't have to judge good and bad. We're only called to be faithful to God. We're called to be faithful to the scriptures. The kingdom results are the Lord's to give. As we fall short, we must humbly rely on the conviction of the Spirit, and we must repent. When we do, we cannot even begin to imagine the depths and the riches of God's blessing. Thinking of this ice bucket in such a, such a small sermon illustration, I wasn't able to get any more ice into that. I was gonna keep our food cold. I was not gonna let our lunch spoil. And pulling that back here, as we are faithful, as we are, repent, as we are repentant, we will see the blessings of the Lord poured out on us, pressed down, shaken, and spilling over into our laps. Amen? Amen.